when you know the character of someone, how many you know it gives you understanding on whether or not you can trust them? I want you to think about that this morning. When you know the character of someone, you have this understanding of knowing whether or not you can trust them. Someone with bad character, you will have a lot of trouble trusting. Now, let me try to relate this to some of you dads who have daughters. How many of you dads want your daughter dating a guy with bad character? Ain't going to happen, right? So I've come up with a list. I have a 13-year-old daughter just getting ready to turn 14. I have a list of what I require for a young suitor who would want to court my daughter when she turns 30. So this is, this is my little list that I've come up with. So in order to date my daughter at the age of 30, here are the rules for dating my daughter, Lily. Are you ready? Number one, I don't like you. Now, how many dads know that it's nothing against the guys that we just, how many know that that's true? Doesn't matter who they are. Can I get an amen from you dads that have girls, right? Amen. Okay. I don't like you. Rule number two, I don't like you. Okay. Amen again. Rule number three, refer back to rule number one and two. Okay. Rule number four, I'm everywhere. Rule number five, if you lie to me, I will find out. Rule number six, she is my princess, not your conquest. Can I get an amen? amen. Rule number seven, I don't mind going back to jail. <laughs> and rule number eight, this is my last rule because this is all there needs to be. Rule number eight, I believe in gun control. I own a gun, and I will control you. That's it. That's all there is. Thank you. Now, we've been, uh, we've been looking into, uh, during our summer uh, series here, in the character of God. And um, we need to understand and know the character of God. And that, that God actually reveals his character to us through his word. And, it, and it's easy to attach the character of God, um, many times with some spiritual authority or figure or any kind of authority figure in our lives. And maybe this is the way we look at God or maybe we look at the character of God. Maybe you grew up in a very authoritative home with a lot of do's and don'ts. And so you see God's character as someone waiting for you to, to mess up and that nothing's ever good enough. Maybe that's how you view God. Maybe um, you didn't, you know, you didn't want to do anything wrong because there was always the thought of hell in the back of your mind. It, it's funny. I, I read this, you know, learning about church history and going to college and learning about church history. One of the interesting things about the Middle Ages is that the worshipers in the Middle Ages many times would get their concept of God by the paintings that were actually um, pictured for them in the cathedrals because they weren't allowed or to have access to the word of God themselves. So they had to rely on what the church said about the character of God. And this put a lot of fear in people. It, it, it allowed many times the, 
those spiritual authority figures in our life, to control the worshipers. Um, so the only picture they would get is maybe this picture of God that they would see on these paintings on the ceilings uh, of many cathedrals. And many of the Bibles are actually chained to the pulpit so people couldn't uh, read it for themselves. And what they would see is this beautiful artwork on the ceilings of many of these cathedrals. And some of the artworks depicted hell and it would bring fear into the heart's of worshipers and they would see this, maybe see this God as, as someone that's just waiting for them to mess up and, and holding hell over their head. Maybe, maybe you see God as this mean, grumpy old man, right? Or maybe we see God as the high school principal. Every time we make a mistake, we feel like we're getting sent to the principal's office. Maybe we see God as, as someone who actually overlooks our mistakes. Maybe we feel that as long as I ask for forgiveness, he will forgive me and we don't have to worry about uh, the consequences of our sins. So what is it? Is, is, is God a, a mean ogre in the sky waiting for me to mess up to punish me? Or is this easygoing God who overlooks my fall? Is God, is God a happy God? Is, does God have a, a sense of humor? Is, is God happy? Is he always disappointed with me or is he happy with me? We need to get to know who God really is. And what's great about this series is we're going to look into the word of God to see the true character of God and maybe kind of dispel some of your misconceptions about who God is and the way God acts towards us. And and one of the most obvious characteristics that we see in God that's brought forth to us in the scriptures is his characteristic of love, that God is love. Now, this is probably one of the most enduring uh, characteristics of God. This is the one characteristic we seem to want to talk about. However, this is probably one of the most misunderstood characteristics of God. And, and the reason why is some, many people think, well, um, and you may have heard this talking with people, maybe, maybe those that weren't necessarily followers of Jesus, or maybe you even had this question in your own mind, is, is this question, if God is such a loving God, why do bad things happen to good people. If God is such a loving God, why are, is there so much evil in the world? Why, why do bad things happen all around us? If God is so loving, why does he allow the, these things to happen? Well, I believe one of the most in-depth descriptions of God's love that we have to really understand God and his love and how he sees you and I is found in 1 John chapter 4. And I want to read this for you in the scriptures because this is, I believe this is the best description that we have of God's love. And we've got to get this right. We've got to get a right understanding of love. And I believe that if we understand this, this will change our relationships. This will change our relationships, how we see one another, how we see our spouse, how we deal with people in the world. We've got to get this down because the problem is we have a definition of love that's based on what the world thinks love is. And let me say this, it is messed up. It's the wrong type of love that, that we see in the world today. And many times we take that definition of love and then we place it on God and we expect God to act our way based on the world's standards. 
but we have to understand how is God a loving God and how does he act towards us? So let's, let's read this together. First down, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And I love what John says here. He says that God is love. He epitomizes this word love. So let's get this definition correct about God. It said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Everybody says, amen. That's great. God is love. I like this. And it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, now he gets into what is God's love based in us? Actually, his love was physically seen manifest before us that God did this that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And what John is saying there, God's love was not precipitated by me loving him first Irregardless of that, God sent his son for you and I when we didn't even love God or even want him or even recognize him. That did not stop God from loving us and doing something about it and reaching out to us. And we're going to dig deeper into that word propitiation because it's so important that we understand that. Verse 11, he said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now, this has to be one of the most in-depth descriptions of God's love that we see in the scriptures. Because what John does is he explains what God's love looks like. This is a concrete way that we can look at how does God love us and how does it look. Well, let's, let's understand something first here. That God's love isn't sloppy. God's love doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us or overlook our sins. But here's what I want you to see. God's love is not based in some sentimental feeling that is wishy-washy. Because we base most of our love on what? Our feelings, right? Nothing more than, right? That that was really, really bad. But anyways, okay. So... That's that's what we we base our love on on how we how we feel. Many of us we know our feelings change and our emotions change. We say to people, "Well, just follow your heart." Right now, how many of that got us into a lot of trouble when we followed our heart? Right, we follow our feelings, how I feel about something. So we throw that word around so casually, and we're basing it. And something that's not concrete, it's based in my feelings. And our feelings change and our emotions change all the time. But God doesn't base it in how he feels. God doesn't base it in how he's feeling that day. He did something about it by concretely showing us, this is how I love you, irregardless of how you responded to me. Wow, that's amazing. So we throw this word love around so casually because we say, you know, I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my pizza, you know. And by the way, honey, did I tell you that I love you? Okay, on the same scale as you love pizza and the cat and the dog. Okay. See, here, here's, here's when, when a relationship doesn't work out, we say things like, 
we fell out of what? Like you fell into it, you tripped into it, right? So we say we fall in love and we fall out of love. Now, now let, let's, here's why I believe we have such a misunderstanding about God's love and how he treats us and what he sees in us and how he loves us. This, this very thing, I think, has messed more people up and how they relate to God and his love. It's this very thing. Because we base our love in our feelings. I fell in love. I had these feelings. Or I fell out of love. And I don't have these feelings anymore. And see, this can get really tricky for this reason. If, if, if we talk in this way, we can actually think that God can stop loving us. So, so, we, we, so we look at God as a God that I have to gain his approval through my performance. See, and many of you were raised that way. That, that you were raised, you know, and I, I've made this mistake. I've done it as a parent just to guilt my kids into doing stuff, right? Where they would do something bad and I would go, well, how do you think Jesus feels about that? How do you think he feels about that, huh? Is he disappointed with you right in there? <laughs> they start crying, right? Just to make him feel. I've done that. Then all of a sudden, we begin to instill in our hearts that God's acceptance and his love for me is based on my performance, what I'm doing right or what I'm doing wrong. And so, you know, in a relationship, we say, well, what can I do right? Why is this relationship not working out? Did I do something wrong? How can I get you to let me? And it's based on this, what I do for you then you accept me based on performance. And that kind of thinking can easily be transferred in the way we relate to God. But see, I want you to understand that God's love is different. God does not use his love to manipulate us. See, what we do is we use our love to manipulate others because we say, if you love me, you will, etc. right? If you really loved me, you wouldn't ask. Right? That, that's, that's how we manipulate. We use love and our feelings to manipulate others. But God doesn't manipulate us by his love. His love is completely different. It's not, listen, you need to hear this. His love for you is not based on your performance. It's not. It's not based on what you have done. God's love is what we must base our love in. His love is perfect in every way. And this is the key for a healthy relationship, whether it's in church or in a marriage. When, when we get this, it changes everything. See, here's the reason why John explains to us why God's love is different than, than the world's type of love. The reason God's love is authentic and real and we can trust it is for the reason it cost him something. God just didn't say, hey, I love everybody. And how's everybody doing? Good. Everybody feels good. I want to make your life perfect. I just want to make you happy. And I want to do No, God's love actually was based in something. God's love actually cost him something. Actually, it cost him everything. And God reached out to us when we didn't even love him and we didn't even deserve it. God reached out to us in his love to do something for you and I, for you and I. If love is going to be real, it has to cost us something. How many remember 
Um, those of you that maybe lived in the, the 60s or even the 70s, uh, free love. Now, what this free love was all about, it, it, a lot of it was associated with the 60s, but this, this type of, of love uh, would not be confined to any lawful marriage. You were free to love whoever you wanted to. Um, it would be easy to go from one relationship to another without this commitment of marriage. And basically it was saying, um, we don't want our relationship to be confined or restricted by the law. But, but I want you to see something about God. God is so much different in the way he loves us. It's not this sloppy love. It's not that he loves us one moment, doesn't love us the next. God's love is committed to us through a covenant that he makes. And, and he makes this covenant. It cost him something. This covenant that he makes to, to you and I through his love, it's, it's binding. It doesn't change. See, God's love is covenantal, not contractual. His love is so much higher than anything else you and I could ever think of. It's, it's, it's actually covenantal. What, what I mean by the word covenantal and not contractual, God doesn't sit there and make you sign a piece of paper, right? And say, okay, I love you. You love me. We're one big happy family, right? Okay, the Barney song. So he's saying, no, listen, if, if, if I love you and I've given everything to reach out to you, it's not a contract that I ask, ask you to sign. I, I love this illustration. It'd be like going to a, mar- a, a, a ceremony, a wedding ceremony, and you've got two people standing before the pastor, and they have two pieces of the paper, and, and they, they sign this contractual agreement. So as they're standing before everybody that's in the congregation, you know, you want it to be romantic and just this love for each other, committing themselves to each other, blah, blah, blah. And they sit there and say, okay, let's see, if you do the laundry... Is that okay with you? That's good for me. If you take out the trash. Okay, I'll take out the trash. And they write this big checklist. How many of you be like, what? Right? You'd take your toaster and you'd head out the back door. you say, this isn't what I came here for. Right? It, it's, it's the vows that they make to each other, which says, I'll never leave you for better or for worse. Right? What kind of language is that? It's not a contract that says, if you do the laundry, if you take out the garbage, if you do... The- when we say for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, what is that? That's covenantal language. God speaks the same language to you and I when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Is that contractual or is that covenantal? That's covenantal language. That's exactly how God wants our marriages to be. Covenantal. So much higher than a piece of paper or, or a license or any of those things. And that's why I think the, 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 the whole 60s generation or thinking of free love missed it. Because they, they were thinking, well, we don't want the law because that's just contractual, which I understand they're thinking. But God says, my love is so much greater than that. That says, you're actually, I'm actually binding myself to you forever. And it's not based on whether or not you didn't take out the trash. It's not based on whether or not you did all the right religious stuff. My love is based in something so much deeper than what you could ever bring to this relationship. So much deeper. And that's why we have such a misconception of love in our society today. 
You see, what God did was he made a covenant with us through the blood of his own son. He did something about it. God's love is not based in some sentimental feeling that can change with time. His love is grounded in something so much deeper. You see, God's love is based in a choice that he made for you and I. See, love is so much more than a feeling. Love is actually a choice. It's a decision that we make to love irregardless. God's choice and decision was to love you and I irregardless of what we would do with that love. He made a choice to do everything possible to reach out to us. God just doesn't say he loves us. And how many know that words are cheap? And unless they're backed up, it's kind of meaningless. God, what he does for you and I is actually demonstrates his love for us. He does something for us. He actually fights for us. And he reaches out to us through his unconditional love. That means there's no conditions, no strings attached that were based on my uh, performance. Meaning I did nothing to deserve it or earn it. He first reached out to me. And the best way that I can even think of this is, is when my children were born, they were a pain. How many of you know being a new parent is a pain sometimes? You're waking up. Let's just be honest here, right? I remember Colby, our first one. We're getting ready to take him to college in a couple of weeks. Oh, my gosh, what happened? Where is the time gone? What? So I remember our first one, Colby. God bless him. Uh, he was a horrible baby, cried all the time, was colicky. I'm like, you know, can we take him back to the hospital? Is there something we can do? Is there, what, what did we do? What, you know, and I remember just being in the middle of the night going, what are we, you know, we're new parents and we didn't understand about scheduling. When he cried, we just fed him. If he didn't drink his whole, if he drank one ounce, we just gave him that. And then he was just, he was, he was just messed up and it was completely probably our faults. And then when we had Wesley and Lily, it, it did get um, uh, much better. But it was like, it, it was just crying all the time. But you know what? Even with all that crying, even with all that stuff going on and changing diapers and stuff, did our kids at that age ever reciprocate back their love towards us? No, all they did was cry, want to be fed, and have their poopy diaper changed. That was it. But you know what? How many parents just loved your child? There was that love irregardless of all that stuff. There was a love. And, and remember that day when they actually reciprocated that love where they actually called you mommy or daddy and they knew who you were and you're like, wow, you know, it's like, okay, it was worth all those late nights, whatever it was. Because there was that love. You were, you were committed to them. You loved them. And see, that's how God looks at us. He's committed to us. He loves us. Some of you need to hear that today. God loves you. He loves you, not, not based on your past, not based on all the mistakes that you've made. God loves you. So even with all the stuff that our, our newborns put us through, did that keep us from loving them? No. Did that stop us from feeding them? No. Did that stop me from changing their diapers and getting up in the middle of the night? God bless Kathleen. No, I helped. I did help. Uh, uh, no, it didn't. We still did all those things. And they did nothing to bring anything to the relationship. They were helpless, yet we loved them. As parents, we loved our children first before they could ever really understand it. See, that's what God understands about you and I. He reached out to us before we could ever really understand it. That's what makes God so amazing and his love so perfect. 
And so, you know, I love to tell my kids I love them and to hug them and so on and so forth because they understand that now. And there's a great relationship that you have with them. That's why I love Romans 5, 8. Because it says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love for us, that, that while we were still sinners, this is how he, dem- he actually demonstrated us that, that we did nothing to bring anything to the table, but he knew. And that's why Jesus could hang on the cross for our sins and say, as, as insults were hurled at him, and Jesus could say, Father God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank God for his patience with us until we understood really what his love was all about and what he came to do for us. You see, God's love is based in his son's sacrifice for you and I. And this is what John points out. To understand the depths of God's love, John explains to us what God did for us. God's love was demonstrated to us by sending his own son. And so here's what I want you to understand this morning. John says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does this mean? Because this is huge for us to understand because this is what his love was based in. And here's what it means. Here's what John is telling us. We were literally dead in our sins with no hope. We were lost to be eternally condemned because of our choices. And this was a direct result of our sin that separated us from a holy God. And so what John tells us is that Jesus became this propitiation for our sin. And here's what propitiation means. It's very important. Many translations will use atonement, but I believe this is a better translation of that word propitiation because it takes it a little bit deeper. I I appreciate the, the ESV and King James for using the word propitiation, but this is what it means. It's a twofold meaning. And at first it involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person And secondly, it means reconciling a person back into a right relationship with that offended person. So it's twofold meaning. First, it's appeasing the wrath of the offended person, which God was offended because of our sin. We rebelled because of the fall of man. We rebelled against God's love and his provisions. And so because that, we're all tainted because of the fall of man of Adam and Eve. We're all born with sin. We're all born with that rebellion against God and we need a savior. That's why Jesus came to this earth. So we we offended God because of our sin. There was nothing we could do to make that right. There's not enough church attendance, Bible reading, enough righteous good acts that you could ever do in your life to ever appease God's anger towards us. Whoa, right? Right? Now, how many of us grew up in a church where we were like, okay, I got to do penance. I got to do all this, trying to appease God's anger, right? We got to do all this stuff. There's not enough stuff that you could ever do in your life to ever appease God's anger towards us. So, so the second part of that is it's, it's, it's not only that, but, but because of that, we had a broken relationship with God. Our sin separated us from God. And because of our sin, we see the evil in the world we see today. So the question is, Why is there so much evil in the world? And if God is such a loving God, why does he allow us stuff? Guess what? It's our fault. It's not God's fault. It's our fault because we rebelled against our maker. We rebelled against the one that loved us, that created us, that that wanted to give us good things. But because of our sin and our choices and our rebellion and our will, we rejected God. And because of that, how many know we live in this evil world that people make bad choices? And how many know that 
that we're affected by many people's bad choices, right? And so what God does is he does something for us. And what he does is he says, I need to make this relationship right. And I know that they can't do it because they're helpless and they're lost in their sin. So what God does is he reconciles back to a right relationship and he uses his son, his only begotten son, as a sin offering, as an offering for you and I to take our sins and our rebellion to put them on the back of Jesus Christ as he dies on that cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus now becomes that offering for you and I. You see, many people want a loving God, which he is, but I want you to understand one thing about the character of God. In order to have a loving God, we also must have an angry God. Now, now let me explain this. Let me, let, me, let me explain this very carefully. If God is a loving God, then he must be angry with evil and sin and what it's done to his creation. God sees what evil and our wrong choices have done to his creation. Now, what we do as a people without God, we try to fix it ourselves. And let me just ask you a question. How's that going? Not going real well, is it? Because we try to do it in our own strength and we're going to fix it. We're going to have better economy. We're going to have better education. We're going to do this and fix the environment, all this other stuff. And, 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 and that's not going real well because, because why? You start with a flawed vessel, and we are all flawed. And how many know if you start with something that's flawed, you're going to end up with something that's flawed. And so what God says, he goes, I know they can't fix it, so I'm going to fix it for them. And so God sends his son. So here's what I want to say. This is going to sound crazy and radical. But you know what? We need to thank God for his love, but we also need to thank God for his wrath. Now, now let me, let me, let me frame this for you. I know this sounds crazy, but without his wrath and justice, we would never be forgiven. Without God's wrath, the problem of our sin would never be taken care of. God was angry at what, at what sin and rebellion did to his creation. If, if God was not a just God or God of wrath, then there would be no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, what separates Christianity from every other religious belief is Every other religious system is working their way up to heaven. Trying to climb that ladder of good works, right? God does something totally different that we read in the Bible. Instead of us trying to reach God, we're going to try to reach God. We're going to try to have good works and do all this stuff and you know, pence. And if I keep doing it, I, hopefully, hopefully I'll make it. God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come down to you. And I'm going to come right down into your sin and rebellion and all this mess. And I'm going to have my son live right amongst you. And I'm going to take care of it for you because I know you can't take care of it for yourself. Do you realize that Christianity is the only world religion that actually gives you an assurance of your salvation? Because it's not based on my performance, but on what Jesus did for us. Good spot for an amen right there, right? Amen. It's not based on my front. Every other religious system is, except for Christianity. So God was, was, it has to be a just God. He has to be an angry God or there will be no need for the cross. The cross of Christ would appease God's wrath and show just how much he loves us. I want you to get a, a, a correct understanding of the cross of Christ. 
Jesus not only bore our sins, everybody say amen, right? But this is what propitiation says. He also bore the wrath of God against our sin to appease a holy God. Jesus' perfect sacrifice and his sinless life bore the wrath of God upon himself for you and I. You want to talk about the love of God? That's the love of God. Willing to give his only begotten son to pour his anger out on him instead of you and us is an amazing characteristic of the love of God. What Jesus did for you and I, he was perfect. It was a perfect sacrifice. He became that object of God's wrath and he took the penalty for you and I. That's love. So what Jesus did for us on the cross was to not only bear God's wrath, but actually turn it into favor. That, that thing that was so humiliating as Jesus hung naked on the cross, as he bore God's wrath, he actually took that thing and actually turned it into favor for you and I, that we could receive God's wonderful gift of salvation. I like what Tim Keller says here. He says, that's one of the reasons God's angry at what's going on in his creation. He is angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people and the world he loves. His capacity of love is so much greater than ours. And the accumulation extent of evil in this world is so vast that the word wrath doesn't really do justice on how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. So it makes no sense to say, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. And he did something about it by giving his son for you and I. Thank God for his wrath and his anger towards sin. Otherwise, you and I here today would be lost. And I want you to realize, even if you read through the book of Revelation, we see, we read Revelation, we think, oh, there's God's anger being poured out. Do you realize that there has to be judgment because of our rebellion? God did everything to reach out for us. And there's his grace, and we live in an age of grace, but there will come a time where God will judge. And the reason why he does is to bring people back into repentance. But, but what John says in the, in, in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a point where people's hearts are so hardened towards the love of God, that it literally says they would rather have rocks drop and fall on them than turn in repentance and turn towards God, our creator. And how many of us, you can see that many times in the heart of man, that it just gets harder and harder and harder towards the love of God and all that he's done for us. The word of God says that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance and know of his saving grace. And so when we come under that covering of Jesus Christ, we're no longer object of, of God's wrath any longer. We are now covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, which protects us from that. And we are now in right standing with God. You see, what Jesus did was he willingly accepted God's will by taking our punishment and becoming our sacrifice to bring peace between God and us. Jesus had to suffer in order to bring this salvation. Now, this is what I love. I love Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. 
So this is what it does for you and I. When you come to the Lord, don't come to him by, with your performance or how good you think you are. You come to him through God's grace saying, I don't deserve a thing. I don't deserve a thing. But this one thing I do understand, Jesus, you've done everything for me. So now when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we're not coming to him in this fear of worrying. Is God going to strike me dead? Did I do enough? Did I do enough good works? Does God really love me? Did, you know, did I say the right things? Did I say the right prayers? God says, just come to me in my son's name. And I love what the Hebrew writer says here. He says, for we do not have a, a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And this is what he tells us to do. This is how we approach God now. He said, let us then do what? Approach, come near to the throne of what? Grace. See, listen, 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 listen. Here's what Jesus did for us. He took the wrath of God. And then what does he do? He changes it into favor. So instead of coming into the presence of God, worried about, am I going to die in God's presence? Am I going to be judged for what I've done? Now we come in through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and his perfect sacrifice. Now I come and now it becomes what? A throne of grace. Do you realize that every worshiper in the Old Testament, when they would come into the temple and they would see the Ark of the Covenant and that, was, that represented God's presence and only the high priest could enter in that Holy of Holies once a year. But when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, what, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? It was the Ten Commandments. You could never approach God without knowing what he required. Now think about it for a moment. For that high priest to come in, he knew, am I perfect? Did I do anything right? Well, he had to sacrifice for himself and for all the people in order to appease God's anger for that, rear, uh, for that year on the Day of Atonement. So when he would come close, he would have to come close to that Ten Commandments. But what was over the Ten Commandments? It was the mercy seat. See, they would have a physical view of the mercy seat and they would come in and they would sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat and God would show favor upon them to say, I will forgive your sins. But they'd have to do it every year, year after year after year, because it wouldn't be fulfilled until Jesus came. And what the Hebrew writer says is Jesus didn't go through a man-made temple, but he went through a perfect non-man-made one. He went to heaven himself, not through the blood of goats and rams, but through his own blood, through his own perfect sacrifice. And so now when I approach God, I'm not worried now, is God going to strike me dead? Even though my guilt is before me and my sins are before me, now what I see is the mercy seat. I see the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that he showed through his own life for me. And so when I come to God, I come through Christ, that mercy seat through his blood that's sprinkled upon my life, that cleanses me from all my sin, even though my sin is ever before me. But now I'm under Christ and his righteousness and what he's done. And so what the Hebrew writer says, listen, this is what you do. Now you can approach with confidence, not based in your performance or what you did last week or the week before or three weeks ago or what you did in your past or five, ten years ago. I don't see that anymore. I only see what Christ did for you. And what does he say? 
that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That we might find grace to help us. Mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's pretty amazing. See, here's what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel is in a nutshell. Here's a whole reason why Jesus came. We know that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to seek and save sinners that were apart from God to give his life. That's the gospel message. Who comes to Christ can find salvation for their sins and have eternal life. Here's, here's, here's the gospel. The gospel is this. I love the way Tim Keller says it. The gospel is this. Are you ready? We are never more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare to believe. Let's just be honest with ourselves, right? Let's look in the mirror. How many of us know we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe? Now, if it ended there, right, there'd be, there wouldn't be a lot of hope, right? And we'd just beat ourselves up and say, I'm never good enough and I'm never ever going to be a good Christian and I'm never going to live up to what God's standards are. If it ended there, it'd be pretty sad. But here's what the gospel message said. Are you ready? Here's what it says. Yet at the very same time, we are never more sinful and flawed than we ever, uh, ever in ourselves and we ever dared to believe. But at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. There it is. That's the, go- that's the gospel message right there. So here's how we respond to that message. I blew it. I'm a sinner I've fallen short of God's standards. I have to recognize that in my life. But at the very same time, I have to realize that it's only by God's grace I'm more loved and accepted than I ever even dared to even understand or comprehend. That's how much he loves you today. And I don't know where you are today with your walk with God. I don't know if you feel like a miserable failure in your walk or you're looking at your past and it's handicapped you, you're you're attached to your past because of the wrong mistakes that you've made and this guilt has been heaped upon you because of that and you feel like you just don't measure up and you just feel like your walk is a struggle all the time because there's this constant performance and you feel like if I miss reading the Bible one day, I feel so guilty about it or if I done if I haven't done this I feel you know bad about it and I've got it you know I've got my Bible reading and then I've got to sit there and I go well tomorrow then I'll, I'll do two right and then how many you know life gets busy and you miss two then you're like well okay I'll do four on Wednesday I'll do four and then you miss that because something got busy kids got sicker and you're now I got six Bible readings to make up I know what I'll do God we start making deals with God Friday I'll carve out an hour and I'll get caught up on all my Bible reading Is that what God wants? Now, is Bible reading good and devotional time good? Yes, 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 yes. But what we end up turning into is a performance thing, a checklist. God says, I want you. I want you. I want your heart. I want to know you. Should we read through the Bible? Yes, those are all good things that we should be doing. But God says, I want your heart. I don't want your checklist. I don't want your checklist. That's not why I came and gave my life for you. I want to know you personally. 
And here's the thing that we have to come to realize. That God loves me in spite of all my flaws. He loves me in spite of all my flaws and all my shortcomings. He still loves me. Now, what does that cause me to do? It causes me to respond to God in a totally different way, not in a performance way, but in a way that says, now I want to know you, God, not based on my performance, but I want to know you because your love is unconditional. Nothing's going to change about that. Now, do I want to read the word now? Yes, because now my motivation changes. Do I want to tell other people about God's love? Not because it's some, some checklist I have to do because I'm going to feel guilty if I don't tell at least four people about Jesus in one week, and then I feel guilty about that because if I don't do that, then something's going to be wrong and blah, 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 Right? All of a sudden, when my relationship with God changes, because now I view what he's done for me in a totally different way, that's not based on my performance. Now what I do is now I want to know him. Now I want to share the love of Christ with other people. Now I want to read his word because now that relationship changes, not based on my performance, based simply upon I want to know you in a deeper way, God. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you're just walking in a lot of guilt and condemnation because you feel like you just... You blow it all the time. Well, welcome to the real world. We all blow it, right? And if we're really honest with all of us here this morning, we look at other Christians and think, oh, they got it all together. Let me just tell you as a pastor, pastoring for 25 years, they don't. You may think they do, but they don't. They're just as dysfunctional, messed up as you are, okay? So let's just be honest. They don't. So let's stop putting on this facade of, I'm a nice, squeaky, shiny, perfect Christian and nothing's wrong in my life. Because we all struggle and we all have issues and we all have problems. Let's come back to the love of God and really what it's based in. It's not based in you. It's based in his son, Jesus. Let's start having a relationship with Jesus and what he's done for you and I. So Lord Jesus, we come before you today. And Lord, I thank you that your love is not based in me or my performance. Lord, I just pray that we would now respond to the love and what you've done for us in a different way, that, that when the gospel message anchors itself in my heart, now I respond in a totally different way. I respond with a totally different love for my spouse. I respond a totally different way for my love for this world. I respond a totally different way in my, in my devotion to you. It, it comes from the heart now. It's not out of obligation, but it comes out of a relationship and that's what you desire most to have with us, God. So we lay all our shortcomings at your feet today. We lay our sin at your feet today and we know that we've messed up and we thank you that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. Thank you that your love never fails. Thank you that your love never fails. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak that in every heart in this place today, that your love never fails, that we would just anchor ourselves to Jesus Christ and set us free from that performance trap, set us free from our past and the mistakes that we've made, and let us live under the covering of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Let's stand.